Hello, everybody. We're continuing this series, I Love You to Death and Back. And if you haven't been with us, we spent a bunch of weeks talking about the truth that God lavishes his love upon us, that you're his daughter or you're his son just because he said so, not because you've done anything right or because you've cleaned up your life on your own, but because that's the way that God loves and that this gives us a radical different identity, purpose in our life. Last week, we made a pivot. We pivoted around this verse. I want to read it for you. It's in John 15. Jesus says, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. No one has greater love than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. Jesus goes on and describes us as his friends. And we're invited into this deeper love where there's a fellowship where there's a partnership in it, where it's not just you standing alone with a newfound confidence that you are God's beloved, but that you use and and are motivated by that belovedness to enter into relationship with Jesus where you love who you are together. And Jesus says, if you're going to love me, if you're going to be my friend, then you're going to need to do what I command of you, and that's you're going to love one another. This seems like, okay, is that a weird command? But, but just think through the way we do relationships. So take me, for example. If you love me, if you want to be my friend, but you don't like Nikki, my wife, or you don't like my kids, well, we're, ah, truthfully, you're just not really going to be in my life. We're going to have some issues. We're not going to have much to talk about. We're not going to have much to hang out with if, if the people that I spend my life with are people that you don't like. Or let's say that you love me, but you cannot stand old Louisville. Or you don't believe in what one church is all about. Well, then we're not going to have much that we can talk about. We're not going to be that close because, well, those are the places that I find myself. Those are the relationships that define me. And so if you love me, you'll love the people that I'm a part of. That's what Jesus is saying here. Do my commandment. Love others as I have loved you. Lavish love on one another. Because I lavish love on you. And so today, we're going to have a bit of a family conversation. This is a pastoral moment. There's a chance that emotions are going to come up for you. You might feel a little defensive or angry. Offended. And if you do, I I think, well, it's okay. You're protected. There on your couch or in your kitchen or your living room, in your car listening, wherever you are, I want to ask you to keep going with me. I might say something you disagree with. I want to ask you not to, to stop and move on to find something that you do agree with, but push through. And see what it is that God is doing within us. Because I believe that God wants to meet us here. So in this commandment, love one another. I want to start with this question. When did you say that this week? When is it that you said we need to love one another this week? I believe that this week we just lived through will be in textbooks. When future generations study U.S. history, 
They're going to study this season of COVID and particularly these last few weeks in our country and in our city. And I wonder, when is it that you said that we are to love one another? If you can't think of a time, let me ask it in a different way. When did you feel outrage? And who was that outrage for? Or who was that outrage against? Was it when you saw the still image or the videos of George Floyd with the one officer on his his neck and two others on his body? Did you feel outrage for George? If not there, was it the 911 tapes that were released of the night where Breonna Taylor lost her life? Did you feel outrage when you, when you heard the panic or when you read the panic, if it was a transcript like I saw? Did you feel outrage at that moment? Did you feel it when protests began? You saw row of row of people so committed to reform and change that they marched in Minneapolis or here in Louisville. Did you feel outrage on their behalf? Did you feel outrage against them? Or did you feel it when the looting began? Did you feel outrage when the young man took a hammer to the subway in downtown Louisville? Did you feel outrage when the police were sending up the the pepper spray and other things like that? Did you feel outrage when Target was looted? Did you feel this thing within you that you needed to defend Target above anything else? That there was sub subhuman quality in the person who filled their shopping cart with things they didn't purchase and you felt such anger and hostility towards them even beyond what Target felt itself. Where was the outrage? Whose humanity did you recognize? And by chance, is there anyone you might have dehumanized? You see... The way to live as God's people is to love the people that God loves. And how we view that changes everything. In this time, we're going to look at this parable in in Luke 13. And I have this annotated Bible at home. It has a bunch of notes. Some of you may have one of these or have seen them before. It's it's a little beyond a study Bible. It has even more than that. And, and I flipped it open to Luke 13 to get some notes on this passage before I preached on it today. And in the annotated Bible, it says that this parable is an oddly placed parable of judgment deferred. And I have to disagree with this. Humbly, I would say that this is a perfectly placed parable that we desperately need to see Today, but before we look at the parable, let me give you the context. Go ahead and grab your Bible or your device. In Luke 13, we begin right at verse 1. And it says, At that very time, there were some present who told him 
Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. He asked them, do you think that because these Galileans suffered in this way, they were worse sinners than all other Galileans? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will also perish as they did. Or those 18 who were killed when the Tower of Siloam fell on them. Do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others living in Jerusalem? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all perish just as they did. This is the context for the parable we're going to look at today. And and I want you to know we're we're not going to really dive into the context very much. Actually, there's a gift for you. I want to give you a little bit of homework. Wherever you pick up podcasts, I want to encourage you to go back in the One Church Louisville podcasts and go back to September 19, 2019. And Pastor Jamel preached on this text and did a beautiful job exploring what this means in in the world of the first century hearers, but also in our world. And go back to that. It's a gift. Uh, I I listened to it this week and was encouraged, and I want to encourage you to go there because we're not going to take the time on the context today except to make one point. And this one point I want to make is actually borrowed from the scholar N.T. Wright, where he cites Josephus in saying that this repentance that Jesus is calling for is a particular repentance. Josephus and N.T. Wright both mention that the first century Jewish sin that they're calling out here is a nationalistic violence. That's what needed to be repented of. There was this nationalistic swell of violence against the other that needed to be repented of. This violence was an ethnic and religious violence. It was an oppressed people, violent against their oppressor. And if you read through those five verses and you think about it, these are horrific deaths that brought confusion, ripped out of the headlines of the day to just be said, like, what is it that we are to do? And Jesus calls, he calls everyone to repentance. And he gives us this parable. Starting in verse 6, it says, Jesus told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came looking for fruit on it and found none. So he said to the gardener, see here, for three years I have come looking for fruit on this fig tree, and still I find none. Cut it down. Why should it be wasting the soil? And he replied, sir, let it alone for one more year until I dig around it and put manure on it. If it bears fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. This is a haunting parable. The owner comes into his vineyard where the soil is rich and looks at this fig tree and says, for three years there's no fruit and the job of that tree is to produce fruit. So be rid of the tree. The gardener advocates on behalf of the tree and says, I'll spread manure, I'll care for it even more, but let's give it one more year. Just one more year to produce some fruit. And if it doesn't, well then, you will be done here. The question right away 
is who's the owner? Who's the gardener? Who's the vineyard? Who's the tree? Historically, the understanding is is either the Jewish nation, the Jewish people are the tree, or the Jewish people are the vineyard and individuals are the tree. And after this season, they were invited to bear fruit, and Jesus came as the gardener to care for the tree and to see the the tree produce fruit. But I want to ask you to allow the Holy Spirit to guide you in this. Whether you think the tree is us culturally or you think the tree is you individually, let the Holy Spirit guide you. I actually even read one commentary that I have to disagree with that thinks that the tree talked about here was the United States. And somehow all those years ago, Jesus was talking just about the U.S. and we are the fertile soil growing Uh, this tree growing in the fertile soil. I don't agree with that, but I would even say that the Holy Spirit could guide us to read us in in that way. What is it that we are doing? Are we producing fruit? But I would say today, the context of this parable, well, our context is a nationalistic violence. And our nationalistic violence goes by the name of racism. It's structurally and systematically built. It's individually and collectively supported racism. That's our context. The violence is over race. Now, your English translation Bible might have the word race come up a time or two. But the concept of race was not invented yet. It was not created yet. Race was not created in Genesis. Actually, race was created in the 1400s, first by a a man named Zerara. He worked for a guy named Henry of Portugal, and Henry was moving slaves throughout the world. Zerara was recording Henry's story and wanted Henry to be seen as this great person for all time. And he began to write of something called race. It was an excuse to steal people from Africa, to see them as less. And so they would steal them from Africa for money, and they justified it by saying that their lives would be better and their identity that which was taken from that land would be replaced because they now were given Christianity, though Christianity was already on the continent of Africa. And if you fast forward today, you can read us in this parable. So after last night, I was very grateful that the sun rose today. And maybe, just maybe, God is giving us one more year. Maybe, as I read this as the tree being the church, or maybe even more specifically, the tree being one church, maybe he's giving us one more chance to produce fruit. What would the fruit be? Well, that would be the love of one another. Maybe he's given us all that we need, the rich soil, the nutrients, everything. And maybe there's one more year. 
Now, I live in, in white skin, and, and we who live in white skin have done an incredible job of publicly correcting our black and brown brothers and sisters. And so today, I want to take a moment and publicly talk to us. So I've heard a lot of times, I have quite a few friends who will be like, Matt, that's, that's cute that you care so much about race. I'll tell you, it's not cute. It's God-honoring. And they'll, they'll come back with, I'm not a racist. I've never owned slaves. And I mean this respectfully, but if that's where you are, you've got to stop it. You've got to stop thinking that way. I know people who sincerely tell themselves, I'm not racist because I have a black friend or neighbor or distant cousin or I say hi to the guy at the gas station. We've got to be better than this. If that's our understanding of racism, then we don't understand racism. And this book by Ibram Kendi that I brought with me today because I want you to see it and truthfully, I want you to buy it, and I want you to read it, and not just know it, but feel it. He says this, to be a racist is to constantly redefine racist in a way that exonerates one's changing policies and ideas and personhood. We are so afraid of the word racist that we won't look within We're so afraid of the idea that if I'm called a racist, that means I would put my knee on Mr. George's neck and I would never do that, so I can't look within myself. Okay, that is just shifting the definition of racism. If this week the definition is would you put a knee on someone's neck, then what will it be next week? And we keep shifting it to avoid looking at ourselves, but I'm telling you, it is time for us to look at ourselves. And it might be emotional in this moment. Yeah, I get it. And you might even feel defensive. And I get it. And I have been there like not three years ago, but like this week. But God gave us one more year. The sun came up today. And this tree gets to still bear fruit, so we're not done. And if the Holy Spirit is the power that raised Jesus from the dead, he can certainly burn out racist ideas within you and within me. So where are these ideas? Well, there are things like if, you, if you're walking and someone walks past you and you instinctively grab your purse tighter, swing your backpack to the front of you, check your keys or your wallet or your phone. I'm not even saying you have to consciously do that, but subconsciously, that's racism. If you make assumptions about groups of young black men, you tell yourself you know what they're doing, not knowing if they're going to play a game of basketball or a game of chess or if they're scholars that you're unaware of. You don't know their story. If you tell yourself you know their story, well, that comes from racist ideas. If you take the news as your own experience, 
and you see a situation of black excellence as one individual, but if you see tragedy as a generalization, that's racist. And we need to own this. And here's the thing. I'm not saying that you need to be 100% racist. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm saying if 10% of you buys these racist ideas and surrenders itself to racism, then you need to repent of that 10% today. If 10% of me has surrendered myself to racism, then I need to come before my God and repent because he's given me one more year. Maybe you're saying, I don't know where that is. I don't know where the 10% is. This is exhausting. Well, welcome us to the journey. We're now journeying with a ton of people who are exhausted. But your racist ideas and my racist ideas are not just killing and blinding us. They are killing and blinding other people. And if you don't know where it is within you, ask the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit will reveal it. And ask the people around you. They may know. Because you may be like, well, I'm good with everyone. But when it comes to the idea of economics, you might be like, but don't take mine. And if you think it's yours and it became yours just because you are so excellent, I guarantee you that there's a percent or two of racism in there. If you like to give consequence to to drugs and and more lofty incarceration terms to everybody and and never have done to, to realize the inequity in all of this and the injustice of all of this, the effect of cash bail on families and communities, well, then you've just become silent to racism. If you've become comfortable in your neighborhood, it's filled with people who look exactly like you and never ask the question how your neighborhood got filled with people who look exactly like you, you need to ask how your story has been told, how your neighborhood was formed, Let's do some homework. Let's do some digging. I've heard from people that I dearly love. Well, this is just what's normal. This is all I know. And that's sad as an excuse. And I have to say, we are better than this. And that shows the evil of this systemic and structural racism. If this is all that you know, then that shows the evil systems are formed and need to be toppled in the name of Jesus. Ask yourself, outside of music and sports, what black or brown people influence you? I say outside of music and sports because most of us, if those are the only areas where black or brown people influence us, we don't really hear them. We're just entertained by them. We might quote them. We might wear their jersey or sing their song. We don't hear their voice. And so who's the poet or the author? The activist or the business owner? Who's the legislator that you pay attention to? Is Dr. King the only black or brown voice that you can quote? I'm not picking on you. 
I'm saying let's look within us. And if it's 60% of you that's racist, I'm not afraid. Let's let the Holy Spirit burn that out. But if it's 1%, you're not exempt. I'm not exempt. We're to be totally surrendered to the love of God, which means 100% of us is totally surrendered to loving God's people. You cannot love God's people and be surrendered to the system of racism at the same time. This is the time to repent. I truly believe that God is giving us one more year. Maybe not one more calendar year, but I truly believe this. And as Scooby told me this week, that is not time to shout. That is not time to sing. This is time to repent. This is time to realize we are on the clock. This nation is changing, and praise God for it. But let's make sure that the church is a part of this, not to replace an evil structure with a new evil structure, but to replace evil systems with a God-honoring, Jesus-centered way of living where the church is a prophetic voice to all who will listen and even to those who won't. This is the time to repent. To my brothers and sisters in white hue, We're not loving one another if we don't repent. And if we are not loving one another, we are wasting this fertile soil that we're planted in. It's often said that we are the wealthiest nation that's ever existed. That we have more of everything that's ever existed. But if we do not have love, we have nothing. So my sisters and brothers in black and brown skin. See, this means things for you as well. I remember this one time hearing Reverend Charlie Dates preach. and He gave this powerful sermon and I was at a conference with Jamel and a couple of their friends. Afterwards, I just, I just had to go see Pastor Dates. And I walked up to him and tearfully and silly, I know you're not surprised by the tears, but just silly I walked up. And the only thing I could say is, please, Reverend Dates, don't give up on us. Please don't give up on us. And this week, as I saw your news feeds and as we talked and text and all of this this week, especially you in one church, I kept praying like, Please don't give up on us. Don't let your heart be hardened. I can only imagine the pain and the fatigue that comes with this, but please don't let your heart be hardened. If there's 10% of me that's still racist, but I'm leaning towards the Holy Spirit, I'm leaning towards Jesus, then I ask that you see 100% of me. Don't lose sight of that 10%, but please don't lose sight of the 90% that submitted to Christ either. And I'm not asking you to teach me, and I'm not asking you to be, I'm just asking like, please don't give up because the whole truth of the gospel is that we all together begin to be one. That is the foundation of this church, and that was true before we began, and that is true in this most painful week we have walked through together. There's a lot of us in in white skin that I want you to know we're scared to talk. 
And we're scared that we'll speak out of the 10% that's still racist as it's being uprooted in us. And I need you to know that we're finding our voices, not for ourselves, but for us together. And it's taken a minute and it's taken too long. But we're in this with you. We'll stumble and trip, but we're in this with you. There's a verse we read often, 2 Peter 3.9, where it says, The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some may think of slowness, but he's patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. Like if you casually read that verse to someone who's been a Christian a long time, they're going to think about somebody in a distant land that's meeting with a missionary. That is not what this is about. He's patient with you. He's patient with me. He's patient with one church. As we sit in this fertile soil, but we don't yet bear fruit. He's patient, not wanting one church to perish. Not wanting you to perish. Because he loves you and lavishes it on you as his daughter and his son, and you are it because he said so. But you don't get to stay there. You don't get to. In fact, I think the Gospels are really clear that if you stay there, one day Jesus will say, I don't even know you. Instead, you're called to join him in loving his people, and not all his people look like you. And the system that we were born into in this country and we were educated in and we now speak the language of, we have got to be separated from it. But I want you to know that God is patient. Wanting fruit. I've heard a ton lately, Matt, your church is political. Okay, we are. Okay. We're political. We're not partisan. We're political. And in my understanding, political is caring about the events of the city. And my understanding of a city is a dense population of people gathered in one place. And if that's what it means to be political, this church will always be political. And if you don't like that, I'm very sorry. We may not be the place for you. There's other reflections of God in his kingdom. But I don't think this is really a political issue. Racism is a discipleship issue. Discipleship is the, is the way that I am going from someone who is completely going in the opposite direction of God to being completely surrendered to the way of God. And if 30% of my life is the opposite way because of race and the systems and structures around that, then discipleship is turning that 30% in repentance, coming back to God, and being redefined by who he is. That's what this is. And I'll be honest, this week I told some friends that I love that this church is committed to bear fruit. I told some people whose faces you see often and some people whose faces you don't that this is who we are. That no matter how painful it is, we'll go through this. Personally, how painful? Collectively? Okay. But we're in. Because if I don't love you, then I've got nothing. 
And if you don't love me, then we've got nothing. And this racism that's found itself in the core of the way that we understand church, it needs to be uprooted. It doesn't belong. And the reason we sat for six weeks on the idea that you are loved and that love is lavished on you and that nothing can take that away is because it feels like when we know that a percentage of us is surrendered to the systems and structures of racism, we feel like, well, then we must not be loved. No, that is set in stone. Now be who God invited you to be. And collectively, let's be who God invited us to be. And let's burn down the trail that gets us back to the life the way that we knew it. I believe in in you, church. But here's something more important. The gardener in this whole parable, Jesus, I believe Jesus believes in you. He's making sure we have everything that we need. The manure is spread, the soil is right, everything we need to bear fruit if we surrender. Now, if I was at all faithful to what the Holy Spirit laid on me, then you need somebody to pray with. If I was at all clear with what God has laid on my heart, then you need to reach out to somebody. And you can reach out to a friend. You can reach out to someone in the church. But we've also got this line open for you. This may have triggered some trauma that you need to talk through. You might need to have some pain, someone you need to forgive. I don't know what the Holy Spirit is doing, but I trust if I am at all faithful to what God's calling me to, that there's something that you need to act on. And our prayer friends are waiting for you. You can reach out on Facebook to one another within our Facebook groups. And I want you to know that that tonight, Sunday night, at 7, I'm just going to be in the parking lot of the church. Nikki and I are just going to be there. Truthfully, I don't even know what we're doing. We're not going to open up the building because we don't have the ability to clean it out the way that we need to. And I really want to follow our leadership team and I really want to follow guidelines. I'm not trying to be rebellious to care in this way at all. But we're going to be in the parking lot. And if you need someone to talk to, to pray with, to sing hymns together, whatever it looks like, I invite you to join me at 7. We're going to go home before dusk because we're under curfew and we'll respect that. Some people may go downtown, some people may do what they do but just officially, I will be there from 7 till dusk. If you don't feel comfortable, uh, you can even send me a note and we can FaceTime from there. We can talk at another time. That's fine. I don't want to ask you if you don't feel comfortable because of COVID or other things. But if you need to physically see somebody, if you need to talk out your frustration or your pain, or your repentance, if you need to pray or sing or believe, we'll be together Sunday night, 7 o'clock. We're being reformed in this. We're being made new. Church, we will bear fruit. I believe in you. I believe in the God who loves you. And I don't think we need anything else.
Amen.